I'm your host for today's White Coat Story. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Christian Latterman. Dr. Latterman is the Chief of Sports Medicine Service and Director of Cartilage Repair Center in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Latterman completed his medical education at the Hanover Medical School in Hanover, Germany. From there, he went on to complete his residency in orthopedic surgery at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Following that, he completed fellowships in sports medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and Rush University Medical Center. In this podcast, Dr. Latterman talks about what it's like to be an orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine and his incredibly busy schedule, his unique perspective into the field of medicine due to his international experience. The importance, of, the importance of balancing work and personal life, and the importance of compassion in the field of medicine. Now, on to the point. Hi, Dr. Lodge. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Hi there. It's my pleasure. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you. Great. So, first question. In simple words, what type of medicine do you practice and um, what does that type of doctor do? So I'm an orthopedic surgeon by training, uh, and my uh, subspecialty is sports medicine. Uh, I am the chief of sports medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the co-chair of uh, Mass General Brigham Sports. Uh, and what we do is we take care of uh, athletes of all ages uh, when they get injured uh, and also when they need help with injury prevention. So have you ever been the doctor to any professional athletes? Yeah, I've taken care any of, that... uh, of uh, professional athletes, uh, high-profile uh, college athletes. Uh, you know, I can't give you specific names. That's, that's against HIPAA. Of course. But, yeah, um, uh, yeah that's, uh, that's kind of sort of what we do. Wow, that's really interesting. So what kind of symptoms do your patients complain of when they come to you? It depends very much, right? So within within orthopedics and particularly within sports medicine, there's subspecialties again. And uh, one of my subspecialties, which are rather unique, is that I take care of a lot of young people with old joints, right? So these are people who have had ligament injuries when they were in their teenage years and high school, and then uh, like an ACL tear, for example, I'm sure you've heard about that, um, mm-hmm. and they get fixed, and then 10, 15 years later, they develop uh, arthritis in their knee joints. And uh, when, when that happens, um, I am the one who basically gets to see them and tries to fix these knee joints uh, for them, tries to repair the articular cartilage for them. That's, uh, that's oh. basically what I see. So the symptoms that a lot of my patients have is since they are athletes, they like to be athletically active, but they can't because they have pain and swelling in their joints. So you have patients that come to you like 10, 15 years after the initial injury with that same problem? Yes. Wow. That's, that, that is absolutely true. And, I mean, I you know, as a sports medicine physician, I take care of a lot of acute injuries, but... Uh, you know, ACL tears, meniscus tears, uh, you know, uh, tendon ruptures and those kind of things. Um, but uh, I also t- specifically take care of them much at a much later stage 
when sometimes they are being told that they need a total joint replacement and uh, you know and they don't want that and then I look at them and basically say okay fine I think we can maybe repair the articular cartilage here it's actually fairly novel technology we use tissue engineering techniques to do that we use a lot of grafts uh, from donors uh, to restore their joints um, you know, and uh, you know, use more emerging technology uh, along the lines of um, what's called orthobiologics, which is uh, basically substances that you can inject or into tissues or into joints to try to build up uh, tissue and to try to control inflammatory situations. Which is really what, in in the end, bothers most of these people and drives the swelling and the pain. So you don't really have to do a lot of uh, actual operations. Yeah, you can I, do. Just, I, do. Uh, I operate. Oh. I operate every week. I operate every week. Um, you know, because a lot of these things need to be implanted into joints. Uh, can you uh, walk us through that process? Yeah. So I mean, uh, the way that goes is somebody comes to your office and uh, and complains about uh, you know swelling and pain, and uh, you know I sit down with them and talk with them, and I find out that. Let's say they have had a ligament injury in their teenage years in high school playing football. And they were doing fine, and they had it fixed, and everything was okay. And now suddenly their knee starts hurting and starts swelling regularly, and they can't run anymore because uh, it, it, it just hurts them to do it. And so I typically get an X-ray, and that X-ray will show some, some degeneration in the actual joint. And you can see that based on certain parameters that we are looking at. And, uh, and then you also, most of the time, get an MRI scan, which is, uh, you know, a different scan that shows you uh, soft tissues a little bit better than x-rays do. And in those, you can then see, okay, you know, there's uh, meniscus tissue, which is the bumper cartilage between the femur and the tibia in the knee that is missing. And then there's uh, some weight-bearing cartilage that is the gliding surface in your, inside your knee may be missing. So could you walk us through the actual procedure? Yeah, so um, once we have this imaging, um, then um, I can sit down with the patient and basically tell them, listen, you know, there are certain things here that are broken down that probably need to be fixed. And very often I actually have to separate that into two different styles of surgeries. One simple one where you basically look inside the joint and say, okay, I verify this because things like x-rays and MRIs, even though they look like a picture, they are actually not a picture. They are... Um, they are essentially a signal, and the signal can be um, distorted. Uh, and uh, there's various things inside any joint or inside the human body that can distort these signals, and then it actually looks like there's something that you see, but there's, it's actually not there. So often we look at it directly and then verify, okay, so this person has basically a, um, it's called a, a cartilage defect, inside their knee it's think about a pothole in a road right and uh, and that needs to be fixed that needs to be filled um, and uh, you can do that with with multiple different ways you, uh, but some of these require a biopsy of uh, of the tissue from the patient so i have I, I take a little piece of particular cartilage from that patient and send it to a laboratory and then i come back six to eight weeks later uh, and uh, basically open the knee joint up, 
clean up that pothole and then into the bottom of it I layer a tissue engineered construct that consists out of the patient's cells, cartilage cells, but also out of other tissue that can help these cells build an actual structure. And you glue that in there and then you close the joint back up and then you need to wait for a while. You need to protect uh, the patient's weight-bearing situation with crutches uh, for yeah, about six to eight weeks. Um, and then uh, and then after that, you slowly start uh, the rehab process. You get them off the crutches. You let them start uh, doing more and more exercises. And about, on average, about nine months after the procedure, they can go back to doing sports like they were trying to do before. And these technologies work pretty well. And this is this will be one case, right? Yeah. Um, and there's uh, there's often also other things that are associated with uh, with these kind of injuries. People can, for example, I'm sure you've seen this. People can be bow-legged or can be knock-kneed, right? And uh, if you're bow-legged, if you think about it, uh, you know you put uh, actually a lot of um, force um, through the inside of your knee. Right, because um, you know bow-leggedness. That means uh, if you draw a straight line from your center of your hip to the center of your ankle, that means that your knee actually bows out. And, and then, uh, you know, if you draw that straight uh, plumb line, it falls very much to the inside of the knee. That means where the majority of your weight goes, and um, and that means the inside of the knee gets 100% of the load, and the outside really doesn't. And then, uh, and that can actually overload a joint. And the same thing happens if you're not neat, just the other way around. And that's actually a very common situation where people run into trouble after, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, and then they may require a change of that mechanical situation. And you can actually change that. You can do a surgery that corrects this malalignment. Um, it's called an osteotomy, and uh, where you basically cut the bone and you you create a wedge in order to change that um, uh, that alignment. Uh, this is another surgery that I do actually fairly frequently, and these are all surgeries designed to stave off a replacement of a joint. Wow, those, that's really amazing. Are there any cases where you just have to replace the joint? Sometimes you do, yeah. Um, you know, I personally don't do the big joint replacements any longer. I do replace um, uh, what's called the patellofemoral joint, which is the joint between the kneecap and where the kneecap glides on the femur bone. Um, that is kind of one of the, it's another subspecialty of what I do. Uh, but sometimes you just have to give up and say, you know, this is just too far gone and I can help this along with biologic techniques that just needs a, a joint replacement. And then I will send that patient on to one of my partners who do total joint replacements. Wow. So let's go back in time a little bit. When did you decide that you wanted to be a doctor? That's a really good question. Um, so what I have to tell you is, is my father is an orthopedic surgeon. So um, orthopedics specific, or medicine uh, in general, and orthopedics specifically, kind of sort of, you know, I was fed that with the mother's milk. Um, and in, I, I'm German, so I grew up in Germany. And um, when I was young, my father was uh, the head of a, uh, of, a, of a surgical division in the hospital. 
and um, he was on call a lot. Uh, and so by the time I turned like I don't know, about 12, 13 or so, um, one way for me to get more time with my father was to actually just basically drive in with him when he was on call. Uh, in the evenings, uh, and uh, so after a while, then basically he started taking me to the operating room uh, as an assistant. And I was basically helping him. Back then in Germany, you could do that. Now that is, you can't do that. It's illegal, and there's rules about that. But back then there was none of that. And so I would actually literally be on the OR table with him, helping him hold, you know, uh, retractors and stuff like that. And I got used to that very, very quickly at fairly young age. And um, but then I I decided you know I I like the humanities a lot I like languages a lot I actually didn't want to do medicine uh, I wanted to do uh, law international understanding those kind of things uh, I actually went to a boarding school in Great Britain that taught international understanding specifically and um, coming back from there um, I really did not want to do medicine I I thought I was be more directed into a political career. My grandfather on my mother's side is, was a politician in Switzerland, uh, so is my uncle and pretty much the entire family that I have on that side. And so, but then um, I spent a little time in South America and um, got to think about a lot of things. And then I decided, okay, now I'm going to go back and want to do medicine. And I started to do medicine in Germany in, in uh, Hanover University. Um, and that's how I kind of sort of started out in medicine. And I was not going to go into orthopedics. Uh, I was actually much more interested in, the, in cancer medicine, molecular biology, which is really the foundation to cancer medicine. And um, I found that very, very interesting. I've always found that interesting during school. But that then changed uh, a couple of years into medical school. So what was it like uh, practicing in Germany as opposed, or I guess learning in Germany as opposed to practicing in the U.S.? That's hard for me to compare because um, I did all my medical school training in Germany. I didn't do any medical school training in the U.S. And I did all my school training, uh, the later years of my school training, actually in Great Britain. Uh, so I'm kind of so I was kind of sort of a little bit all over the place. Um, what we did do in Germany in medical school, we learned a lot from English textbooks, from American textbooks. So, um, and uh, you know, I did prepare myself potentially to come to the U.S. Um, because um, it was kind of sort of part of the training to do the American medical school exams. Or medical board exams um, that was kind of sort of considered kind of good tone so to speak and uh, so by the time I became a orthopedic resident in Germany um, and I got an opportunity to come to the United States I went to the University of Pittsburgh to do research um, it it was never really an issue for me to actually continue on here because I had the American medical school exams already in my in my pocket, but that's kind of sort of how that went. I mean, you know, in Germany back then when I trained, uh, you almost had to have gone to the United States for about a year or so to do research. That was part of your 
career structure to move forward within the university system. Oh wow! So you were talking about how you went, how you like were in Germany and in Great Britain and in South America. Do you think that your uh, worldly experience has given you a unique perspective? Yeah, I, I do believe so. I mean. Um, it, it taught me uh, a lot about um, health inequities and taught me a lot about, um, you know, um, not relying too much upon uh, all the bells and whistles, um, but making things work um, despite um, things that I had to do. In order, I, I was involved in a, in a basic rural healthcare program in Venezuela for six months and uh, you know I was doing vaccination programs for little kids and uh, we taught basic hygiene and uh, also basic economics at the same time and um, that gave me a very different perspective the first time in my life I saw true poverty which in Germany you, you don't normally see that there's that doesn't really exist and um, and so that yeah that gives me a different perspective and the other thing is, is also it, it gives me a slightly different perspective because I have training in two different continents and believe it or not there's significant differences in the attitude towards certain surgeries towards patient treatments etc between Europe and the United States and uh, I I straddle both of that frequently. Um, which is really just to, to my to the benefit of myself and my patients because I can see it from from different perspectives. Um, you know, come back to what we talked about earlier, like total joints, for example. In the United States, people are very, very total joint happy. Right. So um, there's a lot of people who um, who uh, um, just immediately, as soon as something doesn't work in the joint, basically you want a total joint replacement, which is typically a really bad idea. And uh, in Germany, it's totally different. In Germany, they, they have the complete opposite attitude. Um, and so I know the narrative of both of those uh, lines of arguments, and I, I can go through that with my patients on both sides and basically, you know, um, counsel them appropriately. So yes, I, I think it is definitely helpful if you have a uh, a grander view of the world than just your own your own cultural environment. Yeah, of course. So, what's your average day like as a doctor? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. It's a little different now with COVID than it was before, right? So, um, you know, I'm a I'm a chief, so um, I have a lot of administrative responsibilities now, um, and. Um, so typically, um, I'm I'm what you call a physician scientist. So I, I run a lab. Uh, I do a lot of basic science as well as clinical research. I do treat patients. Um, I teach uh, both on a on a local, on a regional, and on a national and international scale. So before COVID, uh, a typical week for me would be uh, seeing patients on a Monday operating on Tuesdays and Thursdays, seeing patients on Wednesday mornings, Fridays, um, prepare for some talks, leave town Friday afternoon, uh, arrive somewhere on Saturday morning or Friday night, give a talk or two, uh, and come back Sunday night, and then on Monday you start over again. The life now is a little different because now we still give these talks, but we do it all via Zoom. 
and so I don't travel. Um, and uh, you know, the higher you step up in the administrational ranks of, of your departments, the more um, administrational load you have. So now, basically, I spend a little bit less time clinically uh, with my patients or in the operating room, a lot more time trying to coordinate uh, you know, people and problems. Um, and I spend about a half to three-quarter day a week doing research. So you travel, like, before COVID a lot. Before COVID, yeah, I was traveling a lot. Before COVID, uh, you know, I would, and this is not just me, this is a lot of people in my position, we would travel at least two weekends, if not three weekends a month. Wow. Did you ever find that just, like, incredibly exhausting? I would have to imagine. You see, this is an this is an interesting question because this is a question that uh, if you ask my wife, she will tell you I'm continuously exhausted. If you ask me, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a matter of whether you like what you're doing, right? If you like what you're doing, then um, energy is a relative concept, um, you know, because you will always find the energy to do what you like. What you like. Um, occasionally, it goes overboard, and occasionally, you'll basically just have a weekend where you just sleep, right? That, that will hit anybody, you know. And, I, you know, I've had that just like anybody. It's like where you're just completely exhausted. But at the same time, uh, you know, uh, the human body is a fairly uh, amazing instrument. And as long as you enjoy what you're doing mentally, physically, you can live up to it. The difficulty becomes if you don't like what you're doing. Yeah, I guess that's true. Because... Uh and this isn't anywhere near your scale, but for some of my subjects in school, well, whether it be like a, a math class, if the teacher is really boring, then the class takes feels like eight hours or something, mm -hmm. and I just run out of my energy so fast. Yeah. But if it's like bio or English or something like that, you know, I could go all day. That's exactly how it is, and this is exactly what happens, right? So. I, I like to do surgery, and if I do a, I sometimes do three, four-hour surgeries, I don't even notice, um, because you're so engaged, you're so interested in it, you know, uh, people always ask basically, well, you know, do you listen to music in the operating room, and I say, you know what, I wouldn't know, because whether the music is playing or not, I don't notice that. Um, you know, because I'm so engaged and so concentrated on doing what I'm doing that I actually don't really know if there was music playing or not. Wow. And, and yeah. if, you, if, if you engage in something so deeply that uh, because you like it, you enjoy it, and you are concentrated with it, um, you have a lot of energy. Does it exhaust you at times? No question. Um, you know, and you need to find an outlet for that. I mean, that's the other thing. Is life is all about balance, right? So... Uh, if you if you work hard, you also have to play hard. Uh, it doesn't mean that you need to completely exhaust uh, and, and your body and do stupid stuff. But, um, you know, uh, there is a saying, uh, an old Latin saying, that uh, that is uh, mensana in corpore sano. It means a healthy mind and a healthy body. And there's a lot of truth to that. Right? So if you, if you uh, work very hard intellectually and you are sitting uh, and studying a lot and everything, you need to work out, you need to do stuff, you need to be active. If all you do is sit on the desk and don't do anything else to basically nurture your body and you're just nurturing your mind, then eventually something will get. 
And I think this is a philosophy that I've seen from a lot of my mentors who I look up to, um, is um, there, you, have to, you have to take the time um, to, um, to enjoy things, and you have to take the time to do the, the, the healthy thing for your actual physical body. Otherwise, eventually it will, will uh, you know, shut down on you. And unfortunately, typically what it does is exactly in my age group, right, in the 50-year-olds. And that's when, when uh, people suddenly basically realize, oh, my God, that was not the right thing to do. So, um, you know, that's something that I think your generation uh, needs, to, um, needs to start learning. Uh, our generation wasn't very good at that, actually, to tell you the truth. I'm sure your dad can tell you that, too. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But how do you... Uh, decompress after work because you you <laughs> have really to know that. the importance of it. So um, I, I for longest time I've uh, you know I have done a couple of crazy things uh, you know I I uh, I've done a lot of things where people would say you know this is uh, kind of adrenaline junkie stuff. Uh, I used to skydive. I used to fly airplanes and uh, I used to uh, do long distance running. Um, and uh, and I buy whitewater kayak. Uh, so those are all kind of things that I, there's a lot of outdoor stuff. That's uh, I don't like gyms. So whenever I can, I go outside. I go run. Um, you know, however long or hard I can. Uh, that changes depending on how well or not well I'm trained. Uh, I like to hike. I like to uh, uh, you know do some biking. Not so much lately, but uh, and. Uh, for the last decade or so, I spend a lot of time on the weekends. If I have four or five hours somewhere, if I'm not traveling or so, then I try to get somewhere onto a river, you know, and let the river take me down. Wow! So you have a you have a very exciting lifestyle. Uh, yeah, I mean, as I said, I mean, you you have to you uh, you know you have to have things that you're looking forward to. Um, both in work, but also in your private life. And uh, I'm very lucky. I have a family that does a lot of things with me. My my sons and my daughter, they do some of, some of these things with me. Uh, and, and my wife uh, is on board with that. So these, these are all things that you need to kind of sort of keep in balance. Uh, but that is important. So I've always wondered this, but I really haven't had anyone to ask. What was the first time uh, it was like when you went skydiving? <laughs> I was scared out of my mind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it was one of those, it was one of those, there's certain situations that you will come through in life where you basically, where you feel like, uh, you know, you have all the strength in the world and nothing can happen to you. And that's typically sometime somewhere in college, uh, you know, I was, I don't know, I was 28 or so when I did that. And, um, you know, I had just done medical school. I had just decided that I was going to stay in the United States. Um, so it was a very exciting time in my life. And uh, and typically this is something that you end up doing with some friends, uh, not just all by yourself. And and that's exactly what I did. Um, uh, you know, I did it, uh, you know, enough times to be dangerous. And then I just, after a while I decided, okay, that was it. I don't need to do that. Anymore. In fact, actually, it was my my chief um, of our department, uh, my chair of the department, who told me that I had to stop it because uh, you know, it became an insurance issue. 
Oh. When you were going skydiving, did you ever get used to it, just jumping out of a plane? No. Uh, no, you don't. I mean, um, it, it, is a, it is a thrill. Um, uh, no question. And, uh, you know, there's, there, there's, what is interesting is, is I actually didn't enjoy that thrill that much. What I really enjoyed was the flying under the canopy. And that was the reason why when I gave it up, I, I became a pilot. So what's the most challenging part of your job? The most challenging part of my job? That's a really good question. There. So the, the, uh, no, there's, there's challenges everywhere. I think the biggest challenge is to try to be uh, true and honest um, to, um, to your patients, to yourself, and to your colleagues. That's probably the hardest thing um, because there's always situations where you just don't know everything about a particular situation, and um, you just sometimes you just need to call it like it is and say, you know what, I don't know. That's probably the hardest thing to do. Yeah. For me, when I look for an answer to something, like for a long time, and then, you know, like you said, after a while you have to say, there's, I can't do this, or I can't figure this mm -hmm. out. Yeah, I understand how that's like. Yeah, really I mean, it, and, and, again. And, and, you know, it, it, is, it, it is always difficult to say, you know what, I don't have the answer. And, and that's actually a really hard thing to say. Is just, uh, um, and, and that does happen. That even happens to experts. Um, and um, it takes a while, um, even through the training and everything, when we are finished as physicians, for example, uh, it's, 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 you have to truly learn how to tell somebody that. Uh, because your patients come to you and they look up to you and they want an answer and they think you have the answer to everything. But often you just don't. Wow, yeah. Well, if there was one thing that you could change in medicine, how it's practiced in your field or just in general, what would it be? So i got to tell you, uh, so this comes a little bit out of, this is the answer that I will give you based on the background that I have. What I would change in medicine is get rid of the concept that insurance, medical insurance, is tied to either a job or, uh, or to, um, to wealth. Now, I think a country like the United States needs to have a universal medical system for everybody. Um, I have so often been in situations where people just basically get bad medical care because they can't afford it or they go bankrupt over it. I think that is just a really bad concept. Um, and, uh, you know, if I could change one thing, I would basically make medical care available to everybody, regardless of whether they have the means to pay for it or not. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good one. And, um, uh, I have heard a lot of other doctors say that because in their experience, like you said, many people can't afford care, and if their insurance can't cover it, then they don't know what to do. And, and, and it is, frankly, it is the source of the biggest frustration to a lot of us because there's nothing as frustrating as knowing that there is something you can do and you can't do it because the patient can't have it. Yeah. So uh, I would like to go back into the past again. So you 
said that you went to a boarding school in Great Britain, and yes. uh, you took a lot of language classes. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like any of those have helped you now in your current career? Uh, I use a lot of lang- uh, or several languages almost on a daily basis. I, I, I speak a lot of Spanish with with, uh, with patients. Um, I, I speak German with colleagues a lot. Um, English, obviously, which is a foreign language to me uh, on a daily basis. Um, I mean, my kids are American. My wife is American. Um, and, uh, you know, other courses, like I took Latin in school and to this day, that helps me a lot with vocabulary. Helps me a lot with pronunciations of words and stuff. But, you know, yeah, absolutely. I, I do believe. One thing that my dad told me, he said, you know, Christian, you know so much about languages, and you speak so many different languages. I speak six languages, and um, you know, he says, you know, your talent is wasted in medicine. And uh, I now know uh, that that's actually not true because a lot of that I still use. Yeah. Wow. So you're you're able to incorporate like education from even when you weren't even when, from when you weren't even interested in medicine into yeah, your current job. Yeah. And I think I think this is this is a strength. In fact, actually, I just had a discussion with uh, one of my one of my students and mentees uh, about that. Sometimes you take a convoluted way to get somewhere, but the important thing is is whatever you do, um, take something with it. You know, you learn. You, you know, you never learn something for naught, right? Um, and just take it with you. And and suddenly, at one point, it will come in uh, helpful. I tell my son the same thing when he basically says, you know, what, what, why would I ever learn this? And so, well, you know what? There may be a point where you suddenly realize, you know what? This is where I can use it. Yeah, that's really great advice. So earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that you had a lot of mentors. Uh, can you elaborate on how they have guided you? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I was very fortunate because I had a lot of people who I managed to get in touch with and who crossed my ways, who took an interest in in what I was doing. And uh, to a certain degree, I think this is a little bit of a two-way road, right? Uh, You have to seek them out, too. Uh, They don't just drop off the the trees and and show up in front of you. Um, And... um, what I have learned is, is if you really put your mind to something and you really want to uh, learn about something and want to get better at something, then look up to the people who are the leaders in the field and don't be afraid to contact them. And I've done that uh, numerous times. Um, and many of those leaders in the various fields, whether that's in basic sciences, whether that is in orthopedics, whether that's in medicine in general, um, uh, really, um, I still have relationships with to this day, and uh, and this is basically these are people that stay with you, just like your parents, and they guide you on decision making processes, and they are important, uh, you know, cornerstones of your life and your and your education. Do you feel that you would have gotten to the same place that you are today without the help of those people? No, absolutely not. They were absolutely instrumental in getting me into the place where I am today, no question about that. So, as a high school student, what skills should I develop to be successful in your field? In my field? Yeah. Um, 
So in medicine in general, uh, obviously there's some basic requirements that you that you need in this country in order to do that career, and that's basically just academic grades, right? Um, you know, I'm not talking about that. Uh, you know, from from a from a um, this is more kind of sort of working on character um, attributes, so to speak. Is um, don't give up. Right? That's important. That's, you'll you'll get a lot of setbacks. Um, you know, listen and be teachable. Uh, that is probably one of the one of the most important things to um, to learn. Um, if you are not teachable, you will not do well in this field because even though medicine is perceived to be a very intellectualized field, a lot of it is seeing and doing and being taught. And um, you know, critical thinking. Uh, ask yourself why are you doing certain things. Ask other people why am I doing these things. Uh, you know, based on your instructions, and try to understand. It. And then I'll try to understand how to improve it. Um, and I think finally, uh, you know, um, having a an open mind. Those are all the kind of sort of uh, things that that we tend to not really learn too much because this is not a subject per se, but those are the important things that you need to bring with you as a basic requirement in order to uh, stay in the field and stay successful in the field. You know, all the other things can be learned. Yeah, that's true. And just from my understanding from doing these podcasts, uh, you kind of learn something new every day because medicine yeah. as an industry keeps innovating and changing. Yeah, I mean, the half-life of our knowledge base is, is probably less than two years right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really recent. Well, now that we've looked at the past and the present, let's take a look at the future. And I want to ask you, where do you think or where do you see the medical industry or even your own field in, let's say, 10 years' time? Oof, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I mean, so in my particular field, um, a lot has happened in these last 10 years that will inform these next 10 years. And a lot of that has to do with understanding how patients actually are truly doing after our surgeries. Until fairly recently, it, the, the success or failure of a surgery was judged by how the surgeon felt about the procedure. So in other words, if you had an ACL tear, uh, we were judging basically, oh, you know, this knee is nice and stable, this is great, so this is a great outcome, whether the patient liked it or not. And we have learned over the last 10, 15 years that it actually is probably more important how the patient feels about it and probably less important how I specifically or the surgeon specifically feels about the stability of the knee. And I think a lot of that going forward will, will and then this is called evidence-based medicine, right? Uh, because it is based upon actual evidence rather than eminence. So in other words, not just about how one particular surgeon thinks uh, uh, things are, but how a lot of patients think they are. And uh, so that will actually inform our uh, treatment options into the future a lot because there may be a lot of concepts that we are still following about uh, how we do our surgeries that may have to be revisited. So that's one of the big things that we 
that we are trying to wrap our head around. And then from a technological side, I mean, technology moves so fast. Uh, we are going to get in, you know, we are going to see a tremendous increase in data out of gene genetics, genomics, nanotechnology that will influence the way that I practice medicine over the next 10 years. Wow, that's amazing. So if I understand correctly, you're, uh, the medical industry will try to involve patients more in what's going to happen to them and uh, yeah. just increases in technology, like you said, nanotechnology, genomics, et cetera. Yeah, that's correct. I think, I think a big, big thing for my particular area will be how we can harness and understand the use of stem cells, for example, stem cell technology. That will play a big role. So final question, what is something that you would recommend to children aspiring to be doctors? Well, um, if you feel that you have compassion towards people and you, you, you have uh, kind of this inner desire to help somebody, um, then you should try and look into it. And if that is what, you're, what piques your interest, then follow your dream. Um, you know, what medicine really is not it is not just cool, cool gadgets. Medicine is and will have to be, if it is going to be successful, is always ultimately about the patient and about the person that sits in front of you that requires help. Um, and you have to have the capacity to deal with that. So, uh, you know, um, that's something that I would try to explore. How do you deal with uh, you know, listen to your listen to your grandparents. Listen to disabled people. Talk to them. Get a feel for whether you can be compassionate versus not. Uh, and this is not a judgment. This is just some people have that ability and some people uh, have it less. Well, that's great advice. And thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the podcast. Yeah, you are absolutely welcome. It's my pleasure.